philosophers. Philosophers. So uh, today was somewhat of a random topic, but uh, and one that I'm not even sure that a lot of people would say that we're qualified to cover. But since <laughs> when has that ever mattered? So oh, qualifications. See our episode on experts to see what we think about that. Yes. All right. So today we're going to be talking about art. Yes. So I guess in this case, no qualifications needed, um, depending on who you'd ask. Indeed. So, so uh, what is art? Uh, without reading the thing, I will attempt to give a definition and then we'll see what Wikipedia has to say about it okay. or Wiktionary or whatever we're using. I'm pulling up both. That's probably uh... a good idea. <laughs> so let's see. Art in the most abstract sense. Well, not necessarily abstract, but most general sense, I should say. Um, in, in programming, these things are interchangeable. Um, or they should be. Anyway, uh, art is any. Mm, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna struggle for a, for a noun first of all. So we'll start with the attributes. The most important attribute is that it is a means of self-expression, particularly um, expression of emotions and the human experience. Okay. Well, on Wiktionary. There are 10 definitions, and I'm sure there would be more. Uh, most of them are useless. Uh, the first one is the conscious production or arrangement of sounds, colors, forms, movements, and other elements in a manner that affects the senses and emotions. Usually, specifically, that's a weird phrasing, the production of the beautiful in a graphic or plastic medium. Weirdly, generally specific. Um... I think, Generally specific. Yeah. There's your oxymoron of the day. I mean, look at that last sentence. Usually, specifically, the production of the beautiful in a graphic or plastic medium. It's general in the first half, and then it gets specific in this latter well, half. Well, okay. It's, it's because it, they're, they're putting the usually specifically because whenever someone says art... Like in the in the broadest sense, or rather in the in the most general case, when someone refers to art as a noun, they mean like traditional. Uh, uh, oh goodness, what the heck is the word that I want? Physical art, physical media. Right. So I think the first paragraph of the Wikipedia entry is a lot more on the nose to what you were saying because it actually uses the key word I think that we need to look at. Expression. Yes. Well, it uses the uh, different form. Expressing, yes. Yes. Um, art is a diverse range of human activities in creating visual, auditory, or performing artifacts, artworks. Expressing the author's imaginative, conceptual ideas, or technical skill intended to be appreciated for their beauty or emotional power. Other activities related to the production of works of art include the criticism of art, the study of the history of art, and the aesthetic dissemination of art. So, that's a little more broad. Uh, it's a little more all-encompassing, and it uses that keyword expression. Um, and I think, along with expression, I think the other, the other critical part of this is expression for the purpose of invocation. And by that I mean, I want to express the way I feel feel it's usually emotions because we have plenty of other ways of expressing things that are a lot more oh, what's the word i'm looking for here um 
concrete concrete practical um what's the word um direct objective okay a lot more objective um whereas emotions are purely subjective um so actually depending on how you define emotion but i will stick with purely subjective I, i would think that those who would advocate for the importance of art would would tend to rely on them being primarily subjective and the whole point of how you gauge art and its effectiveness is how well it can evoke emotions in the in the viewer or the audience of the art right and i mean like the the real the real utility of art if there if there is any is to be able to communicate that which apparently cannot be communicated by conventional means like speech well, you say that speech can be a form of art as well, in the form of poetry or literature. Mm. It's possible. I would say in purely descriptive speech, like if you were to use clinical descriptive speech to describe an event, it's not enough sometimes to communicate the feeling. Like I, when I think about the difference like, like between if, if I if I tell you I stubbed my toe, it hurts. That's not like a, an emotional expression. That is just me delivering to you the facts. Right. Um, if I write a poem about how much my toe hurts, now it's an expression. Right. And I think the ultimate goal in a lot of cases is to try to invoke the same feelings the person had while experiencing an event. Not always. It's not always an event. But if you look at more classical art, it typically was. You know, it if we look at art in a practical purpose for a long time it was for historical record keeping but in an interesting way like it would like for example famous battles being depicted the exact instance being captured in the work of art probably didn't happen right but it's not meant to tell you exactly how the battle played out it's not a battlefield log you know or a field commander's journal it's a it's supposed to kind of help evoke what a person observing the battle or even living at the time when the battle's importance was relevant to that individual, how they felt about it and what they perceived. And so in the traditional sense, it's, you know, here's how I felt like a good example is the, is a Guernica, I think, um, which was a, a man. It was, it was a painting done about the firebombing of the city of Guernica in Spain by the uh, Spanish fascist revolutionaries yes. being assisted by the Germans, uh, the Nazis specifically. And the horror of that event and how people felt about it at the time, that's what's communicated primarily with painting. Right. Obviously, being Picasso, it does not look like the event <laughs> no. did at all. But it is meant to capture the feeling. Exactly. Um, so, I, and, I, and don't get me wrong, there's plenty of other avenues of art that have a lot more to deal with things in a more literal abstraction where you're trying to capture internal processes of the mind like creativity for example what does it feel like to feel creative that's a weird thing to ask somebody because we don't normally think about that and then to have someone try to represent that visually or auditorily or in to, to a combination of our senses is also difficult. Um, I think music is one of the ones that's the most easy for most people to understand. I mean, there are 
sad songs for a reason. Like we can classify songs based on the emotions that are commonly brought out. Whereas it's a little more difficult sometimes with, uh, like paintings and stuff. Like I'm not saying it's impossible, but like music, because it just, just how naturally we react to like the difference between a major and minor key. Even people who don't know what those things are. If I play them a song in a major key and then play it in a minor key, they'll tell you the one in the minor key is sad. That's not necessarily true. Not necessarily true, but a lot of the time, like you can take a happy if song you, and down tune it. If you take, if you take a, if you play a chord or, it, or yeah, if you take a work that somebody is already familiar with and change it from major to minor or vice versa, and you show this to a person experienced experienced in the western musical tradition that's then true. they will recognize the minor key as sad and the major key as happy because that's usually how it is used but it's not necessarily that way and and there are even plenty of examples of western works which are you know supposed to be sad or, or negative but might be in a major key there's still a lot more that goes into that than just than just that but you, you can get you can get a feel for the Western tradition by just simply playing a chord on a piano yeah. and asking people how they feel about it. A Westerner will say the minor key feels sad. Right. And as far as what you were saying about a major key being used to communicate sad, I mean, just listen to any song by the police. Yes. Um, um, okay. So we've kind of hodgepodged a bunch of things that are roughly what we could describe as art. So, um, you had listened to something this week that kind of brought this topic up. You know, what was that? So I was listening to one of my favorite uh, shows on the on the radio, Philosophy Talk, uh, from... Oh, goodness, I'm going to forget. I'm going to forget which uh, radio studio they're in. doesn't matter. Um, you, can, you can find it if you want to. This is an episode from 2012 uh, on poetry specifically hmm. um and um anyway i, I found it interesting because it was it was sort of being argued whether whether art first of all whether art could be used to communicate anything useful but then also uh whether art was at odds with science okay. that was interesting um and uh yeah. Th uh, well, that yes, that's that's what it was about. Um, and uh, there were there were a few good gems from there. I will I will refrain from trying to recount the entire episode because that doesn't sound very fun. No. Um. Nor efficient. No, you can just go listen to it yourself if you want. Um. But uh, it was it was interesting. Uh, uh so I, I learned some things. Uh, for instance, uh, Plato, um, said that from like like poets would need to be expelled from his perfect society hmm. because of how they could convince people of false things with their words interesting that was very interesting <laughs> but it makes sense though yes. like one of the things he complained about especially in his criticism of democracy was the uprising of the demagogue you know a, a person who is charismatic and can just lead Get people to do things yeah yeah <laughs> and and don't be wrong i mean he had great examples to work with you know and we've seen plenty of great examples of oh, this yes. throughout history 
where people, man, I just, well, I just really like that guy. He seems like he's got my best interest at heart. And they, and if you look at a lot of the great leaders, like, I mean, Mussolini was a poet, for example, you know, I mean, I've even read some of his poetry. It's pretty decent. Some of it, it's not being really weird. Um, but yeah, I, I, especially when you think about if, if your point is to try to evoke emotion, that's the same tactic used by people who are chronic manipulators. The, the easiest way to manipulate a person is emotionally. Yes. Because it's the area and arena we're the least prepared on average to to deal with. We're so well, used to right, just passively Right, because by the it. nature of, of emotions, they, they take over your brain state. Um, you know, it's it's hard to turn your your BS detector back on when you are overcome by a feeling. Yeah, actually, all right, weird anecdote time. So my wife and I have a category of media we like to consume we call trash. Um, and uh, it usually involves reality television. But when you look at it for what it is, it's super interesting. The most latest event, uh, the, or most latest piece of trash we've kind of started to observe is a show where a panel of air quote experts relationship experts pair up people marry them together never having met before and then over a trial of six weeks see if the relationship will remain as a marriage or get divorced in the in this is in the united states and it is so weird because they're you're essentially trying to and if you really step back and look at what they're doing they're trying to hijack a lot of the human tendencies for example mere absorption through proximity and the fact that if you just stay near someone long enough you will tend to develop some form of relationship with them that is usually positive right this is how stockholm syndrome works exactly and it and it's essentially just doing that right and seeing Except if they can you're not captive per se um socially you are though and i'll tell you why because one of the okay i'm gonna go off on a little mini rant for just a second i swear i'll, I'll only be a second one of the experts is a pastor you see where i'm going with this and every time he shows up he will try to convince them to stay together for just absolutely non-existent bs reasons and he'll do things like Here's the photo album we got made up from your wedding and honeymoon and make them sit there together and look at it. And it's, of course, happy. Of course. You're all dressed up. You never met this person. You have no reason to hate them. And your family's all there. Your friends are all there. It's a beautiful setting. They always send them to a honeymoon in an exotic place. It's, it's using that emotional, you know tied to really wrench on people and it is sick to watch if you really think about what's happening to these people but anyway that was my brief tangent into great. how great yeah it, i think plato would look at that show and be like that that right there is what i'm talking about this is why you got to kick the poets out because <laughs> <laughs> they get crap like this to happen but uh anyway sorry i didn't mean to cut you off there sure so so that was interesting um let's see uh other other gems uh that came out so so okay this has been stuck in my head all day since i listened to it this morning it's a this this really is completely off topic but it was an amusing poem that was read a uh, very short one uh short enough for me to memorize in fact and you'll have to pardon the mispronunciation but i have to mispronounce this uh name in order to make the rhyme work that's fine nietzsche is peachy but liquor is quicker 
So, <laughs> so I've been amused by that today, and I've been I've been pondering, um, the you know the the practical get results versus contemplation of things. Right. Um. So let's take that first point. I I wrote down the two points that you say that were kind of being addressed. The first one was, can art communicate anything effectively? I think that's pretty obvious that it can. It depends, though, I think, on what you mean by communicate. I think if you're looking at it in an objective sense, sometimes. Uh, one example, uh, okay, sometimes and within context. And that's the key for art, I think. Uh, my wife is an artist. You know, she paints regularly. She does photography. That's kind of what she does. That's her favorite outlet. Um, and she knows a lot more about art than I do. So we can both look at the same painting, but the fact that she knows about the person who painted it, when in their life they painted it, what was happening in their life when they painted it, she can take a lot more about what's attempting to be communicated than me never knowing any of that. And if you look at art appreciation courses, that's what they do. That's all they're doing is they're providing context so that the painting makes sense sense and it's well, not right just paintings, right but... well, we'll take your earlier example of picasso yeah. um most of picasso's work is weird to most people mm -hmm. anything any cubism work that he did um other other works may may have have different reactions but anyway most, maybe most people look at it and they're like wow that's strange um uh, because because it looks strange but that's all you have to go by if you don't actually know the context right um like and the, the title of the paintings rarely help, <laughs> you know. Um, right. Like the one about Guernica is just entitled Guernica. Guernica. Yeah. yeah, Guernica or whatever, however yeah. they however he pronounced it in, in, I think he was Catalan. I don't know. Um, yeah, if you don't know what that is, if you don't know that that's a city and you don't know the history of what's going on, you just see something. Now, right. you might be able to take from it that something terrifying is happening, but you don't know what, you know. So that if you don't know to the unknowing observer, yes, it effectively communicated the feeling of like, it might effectively communicate the feeling of something terrible happening, a tragedy. But as far right, as but you don't know if a warlord came through or a, a plague or, or was it just like the Chicago fire, like you don't know, right? You know, like is it just a fire that started and they couldn't stop it? You know, I think a good example, a good example of things that also are just drenched in context, but also do a really good job of communicating. If you look at a lot of the Greek classics are like this as well. You know, the, uh, you know, the triptychs made based on Dante Alighieri's, you know, the divine comedy, they all contain symbolism and themes that have continued maybe because our culture is downstream, even if it's very far downstream from Greek culture, but a lot of the symbols you know, dark colors, meaning something bad is happening, impish looking things that no one has ever seen because they don't exist. But someone was able to put a face to what they think evil looked like. And that stuck. And so you can see it and know that something's bad, ha you know, something's bad, something bad is happening. And a lot of times it's pretty straightforward. Like you'll see a guy laying on the ground, mostly naked, cut up, like, there's no way to take that as he just had a good old time. You know what I mean? Like right. it's going to be tragic, but as far as like, who is this person? He doesn't have a name tag, you know? And if you don't know anything about Greek mythology, it's not going to make any sense. 
and that's and that's how it goes for a lot of the art around greek mythology like the birth of venus from the pearl or something like that if you know what i'm talking about where it's got the, the clamshell yes. and she's this is naked beautiful woman standing there you have no clue what's going on if you don't know who this person is you know so i don't know i think it's it's hit or miss i although i don't necessarily now that i think about it think it's much of a problem i think art always is contextual because of how it's made it's made by people about events or about phenomena right so the events and the phenomena are and the the way that the art that's created is always going to be heavily influenced by the culture of the artist who created it and so it would make sense like art created in our time we understand i think the issue comes to across time it becomes more difficult but maybe in the immediate circumstance it would make sense you know like uh because art is typically when you look at art created around cultural events they're usually things that most people have heard of they're not they're not typically used i don't think to spread knowledge about an unknown event you know what i mean uh it's usually something gets widespread um like a good a good yet sad example being nickelback i'm gonna go ahead and go there if you can call that art um a lot of their songs you and I probably get what they're talking about. And it's weirdly about the war in Iraq and American interventionism overseas is what their songs are about. And the culture of around that. Like, uh, another good sidestep is a, a YouTube channel I've been watching lately. It's more, I, I watch it more because it's just entertaining, but it does have some useful context. It's called Todd in the Shadows. It's a great channel. Uh, he breaks down pop music. And the interesting thing about pop music is... He looks at it by year and then by decade. And, and sometimes and sometimes he'll do like a one-hit wonder and everything like that and talk about why these songs are the way they are. And if you look at how popular music has changed, they often reflect like the cultural feeling of the time. Yeah. Um, grunge is a great example. Grunge is a dirty angst that's put to music. But if you look at the 90s, especially 93 everyone was freaking angsty about crap you know what i mean no one was happy every you know the president was just impeached for being a scumbag you know like everything was going wrong and then in the 2000s when you had obama as president and things were just besides the economic crisis everything was focused on the club you know like let's just go party and forget about life for a while you know a great example of uh, one hit wonder he did was talking about Mungo Jerry's uh, Summertime. That is the only song that was in the top 10 that year that was happy. Because in the 1960s, what was going on for us? Like, and 60, late 60s, early 70s. Vietnam was a thing. No one was happy. That's where you got the wah. Whoo. Yeah. What is it good for? Like that, that was all the music at that time, essentially. And then you had this dude come along singing a folk hit. And it was popular because people need a break from just crap so i do think it's excellent at communicating those emotions within a cultural context at the time i don't think it's a good communicator between cultures necessarily like for example i don't know that people in vietnam could have listened to american music at the time it, it might have oh, been helpful no, and understood it no no they wouldn't get it even if they could speak english just fine even if they knew it was going on in the united states they 
don't so there's something, feel it, you know. Slight tangent here, but about about understanding other other cultures. Um, I I saw something a few weeks ago um, about how people, uh, well, Americans and perhaps a lot of other uh, folks outside of Japan, think that like Japanese uh, humor is all slapstick. And you get this because of how popular it is to watch like outrageous Japanese game shows. Yeah. Uh, in the silent in the library. That's a good one. Um, I, I don't know that one. Oh, anyway, uh, the, the point, but, but I've, I've seen many such things. Um, but the, the reason why people, Americans think that Japanese comedy is slapstick is because we don't get any of the cultural references that make their stand up funny. So we never end up seeing it here. Nope. We do get the way they're communicating it, and it just so happens to be similar to the way Western slapstick comedians communicate. Well, it, it's not even that. It's that most of their humor, just like most American humor, is not slapstick. But the only stuff that we find funny is the stuff that we can understand, which is, ha ha, he got hit with something. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> um, I don't know. I feel like art might be a second tier way of communicating. Um, it cannot really be used on its own. I don't think. I think it needs context. It needs. It, it. I think it might be a great way of being able to further your understanding, especially of another culture, once you've been immersed in, in a different way. Um. I think because of the way we form associations, if you're if you're not acclimated. And then you try to use art to understand another culture, you're going to get it wrong. And you still might get it wrong after that, but you stand a lot better chance when you understand the culture that's producing that art. So I think maybe as a second tier clarifier, <clears throat> and in a way that kind of makes sense when you, when we think about how we as individuals communicate with each other, especially regarding emotional events, I can tell when someone else is upset and that doesn't tell me anything about why, but you can tell. And until you have context to frame it, you don't know what to do with it. You, you, you kind of know the ballpark of well, maybe I should ask the person if they're okay or depending on how well you know them. But as far as any kind of action or any knowledge you can glean from it, besides the fact that this person was upset, you can't do anything. And right. so it, it might serve as a great way to help contextualize further contextualize a culture or an event but it can't be used on its own just like we can't just scream nonsense at each other when we're angry and hope to resolve a problem or even communicate a problem all we can do i mean it's like it's like a baby all a baby knows how to do is scream and you can tell what emotional state a baby is in but that doesn't give you any have fun guessing what it is yeah because that's all you have to go on (laughs) exactly And apparently there's like an instinctual thing where people can tell the different cries of their baby. I don't know. I'm not a parent, A, so I have no personal experience with this. And B, I not looked at any of the science around it. But even then, it's I mean, you could learn it with like a particular baby. Sure. And I think that's what they're talking about is if it's your child, you figure it out. They scream about something. You try something. Well, that didn't work. Okay. I tried something else. Okay. That one worked. And then that will stick in your mind. Next time I hear that scream, that's what they want. Right. But like, even at that point, if you hear your baby screaming and it's the, oh, they're in pain screaming, that's now all you know. Right. 
why, why, what's causing them pain? Where does it hurt? You don't know. And that's why, you know, you just got to poke at them until they scream louder. And it's like, ah, this must be the thing that hurts. And then try a few more areas to make sure they weren't just agitated. I don't know. So, um, I think that pretty much fairly exhausts the first bullet point. Would you say about, uh, can art communicate anything effectively? Yes. Yeah. So ultimately in summation, yes, but as a second tier form of communication, not context is more important first and maybe the objective facts about what was going on. And then art can like bring it into focus and provide more layers of detail. You might not have been able to achieve the same. And that's way. not necessarily always the case. Um, I mean, like there, there is art that is timeless. So long as you can understand the medium, uh, obviously Thousands of years from now, when English has drastically changed, poetry written in current English might be harder to read and understand. Sure. Provided you can do that, then there will be some things written that are that are timeless. You know, the human experience doesn't change all that much throughout time. Right. And you can understand a lot of things anyway. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. I mean, you know, presumably 100, 500 years from now, someone could listen to a love song from the sixties and get what it's about. Sure. Well, just like we can kind of get some of the things from, uh, Chaucer. Uh, what was that? His work that was, uh, the Canterbury tales, the Canterbury tales. Yep. Again, they all piggyback on archetypes, which are deeply ingrained in kind of these, I, I want to say the base human culture. Like mm, I, I know, be I know very careful I, with I, that. I, I'm trying not to Peterson my way around this. Okay. But, it's it's western i mean it, it is western real <laughs> it, it is western but like when it comes okay it's western in their in their interpretations but it doesn't matter what culture you come from there has always been the concept of the leader sure how that's viewed does change with the culture but the rawest concept of this is the person that tells other people and other people listen right and that's what sets them apart that's universal or fairly universal and so you can get the most basic concepts and at that point it's honestly kind of useless but that translates across time um but yeah like canterbury tells was written forever ago you know in old english or uh, I think it's like middle, middle English. Middle English. Still though, it, it it sounds like French to most people. You know? Right, right. If I started was. speaking it to you, you would have a hard time understanding me. Exactly. It's sort. The thing about Middle English is it's it's close enough. If you listen to it hard enough, you mm-hmm. can you could get it. As opposed to Old English, which is just completely unintelligible. It sounds more like German. Exactly. So um, okay, that all being said, let's move on to point two, which was art at odds with science. Huh. I can see several different approaches as to why people might think that or why people might not think that, uh, the, the instance, the, the example you gave was, uh, did you give an example of like something they said about, or do you have like an example of how art might conflict with science? Or like, what's your opinion on that? I want to get your opinion first since you actually listened to the philosophy. Mm, talk. So, well, the, so the art conflicting, with science or at odds it's like it, the art being at odds with science is the thing that i brought up about about plato about uh poets being able to uh convince people of untrue things by way of emotions i, I think science might not be the right word i think rationality is probably a better 
way sure. of putting well, it. Sure. Well, I mean, when Plato was talking about that, science wasn't a, a word. Right. It's just rationality. I mean, the, it can. It kind of makes sense. I don't know that it's always at odds. I just think it has the ability to be at odds. Right. Because we can already be at odds in turn. Like, people all the time have to resolve emotional and rational struggles internally. We we all deal with that at some point. Good example being, you know, you might see a homeless man that you know is a alcoholic. Like, you say he's the, he's the town drunk. But you might see him one day when he's particularly miserable and you really want to help him. And you really want to give him some money. But the rational part of your brain might tell you that's probably not a good idea. You might only be feeding his problem. But the emotional side of you wants to see at least temporary alleviation in the suffering. Because emotions don't understand time at all. It's only the present. Mm -hmm. Um, Another example is, especially when people are angry, it's real easy to be mad at a person for everything they've ever done to you. And regardless of when it ever happened, but angry. You know, like, I'm angry now. And I will always be angry at you about this because emotions, again, don't understand time, you know. Um, I don't know that it's at odds. I think it's it's not like they are, it's not like they're, they exist on the same spectrum. You know what I mean? I think they're, they're in two different realms. And so like the method by which we parse emotions and then parse our rational thoughts are just different. And so you can get conflicts. But a lot of the time, I think the conflicts just come from the way by which they manifest. It has nothing to do necessarily with, I want to feel bad about this so that I can fight a rational thought. You know what I mean? I don't think there's any, I don't think the conflict comes about just because it's art and just because something's rational. I think it has a lot more to say about the human condition of the constant struggle between our various levels of interacting with our world which would be the emotional the instinctual and then the yeah the rational right so i mean that's not too complicated um and there's certainly plenty of art that i mean look at r slash data is beautiful that's art to some people but it is science it's you can use clever ways of displaying objective data to enhance what is trying to be communicated and they work in concert you can also do that to misconstrue data absolutely you can and so uh, that's why i think it goes back to our poets problem yeah i I think it's agnostic i I think i think yes all these things are agnostic sure i I think the way the, the definition of at odds i would accept is that they both have a direct pathway into your decision-making process. And neither one can just shut the other off. Like, I don't think a person can ever be so rational they can just shut off their emotional response. Sure. But you can take two rational thoughts and one, one will defeat the other. Like, there's a finite bandwidth that they're going to fight over. And then once you, you have to resolve them before you can adopt either. And in the same way, you have to do the same thing with emotions. You can't be happy, sad at the same time. Well, you can, but ultimately one of them is going to quickly push the other one out because we're uncomfortable being in a complicated state like that. But then the problem is you can easily feel happy about something, you know, is wrong. You can also feel really sad about something you rationalized is right. 
And that's a lot harder to resolve because they both can freely occupy their spaces. Yep. And neither one of them can guide you to the other area's resolution. Like, it doesn't matter how well you've rationalized something as being good. It can't make you feel better. You know what I mean? Necessarily. Right. Like, like a breakup. Yeah. Like, breakups normally just do not feel good. Right. Even if you th- can think, okay, you know, A, B, C, D, and E reasons, I really had to do this. It's right. still upsetting. Exactly. It doesn't matter. It, it does not matter. You cannot rationalize your emotions and you cannot emotionally come up with rationalizations. They can kind of kick start the process, but they're still in their own lanes. They don't cross lanes, I don't think. Um, and so I think that's how they can be viewed as at odds is that they both have a direct line to the core of whoever it is that you are as a human being. <laughs> like... They both have a red telephone to the Kremlin and they, (laughs) and that's it. Like they can't shut each other off and they're free to be at odds and they're also free to be in concert, but they're not constrained by each other in any way. And I think that's maybe how you can view them as being at odds. Hmm. So I don't know that's not too difficult to, to realize. As far as the struggle that occurs though, like if you do find yourself in an instance there are ways with dealing with it, you know, like to give an example, I can be rationally aware that I'm irrationally upset. Obviously. Yes. I can't rationalize a way to make myself feel better. But what I can do is rationally go pull up a musical playlist of really freaking sad songs and just hit rock bottom as fast as possible because I know myself well enough to know that, I'm the kind of person, and in my experience, instead of trying to listen to happy music when I'm sad, I just need to go ahead and just hit hit the bottom and then let let the emotional part of me just vent out what it needs to. And just the, and the quickest way to do that is just to keep going. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, well, we're already sinking. We might as well hit the bottom first and then bounce back, and that's how I'm going to feel better. And the rational part of me can understand that as a function of time. Like, my emotional state graft as a function of time with playlist right i can either be this slightly negative state for a long time or i can hit rock bottom real fast and be back to my normal self by next week or whatever or by tomorrow even a lot of the time whatever the the problem is sure like the playlist is only like two hours long but anyway sure i don't know why i said next week normally things don't last that long normally emotions don't normally last that long no Uh, um but all you're doing then is you, you can understand yourself well enough to know how you can manipulate yourself um you can also and this is the thing that's weird to me i don't i don't do this that i know of or i'm not aware of it but i know people who can trick themselves into feeling good about a bad situation and they can emotionally kind of gear themselves up as a form of reinforcement when rationally everything's going hitting the fan you know um and they use that as an emotional way to pull themselves together and not become flustered. And then that enables their rational mind to take over and begin making decisions. A good example are people in a panicking situation. They can elicit an emotional response that makes it easier to not panic. You know what I mean? Like they can, I mean, and I don't know that you can broadly categorize optimism as an emotion, but it kind of is. You know, 
because it, it's not rational to be optimistic or pessimistic um, or to feel those ways. But I know, I know people who they know how to dig deep and, uh, and a weird study I've seen before is uh, you can actually backwards invoke emotions by making facial expressions. Uh, it was an interesting study about um, like you can't help but make certain facial expressions when you experience certain emotions. Like when you are happy, you can't help but smile if you're the kind of person that smiles. Even for a moment, you might catch yourself doing it, but your body will by default, try to communicate its emotions to the world. It can't help it. But because that's such a it's hard... It's also an interesting thing. <clears throat> your your facial expression is so attached to your emotions that you can actually make yourself feel better by forcing yourself to smile. Well, that's what I was going to say. It's like you can take advantage of that hard line yep. and actually consciously make a smiley face and you can feel a little better. Right. I mean, you can do it right now if you're neutral listening to the show. If you make a smiling face, you will feel a little bit better for no discernible reason other than that you are smiling. Sure. And I guess, you know, a, a very deep part of your brain has to has to rationalize to itself, I'm smiling, I must be happy right now, or something. It's weird. Yeah, it is weird. Um, so, yeah, that's... And if you furrow your brow, you'll suddenly feel serious about things. Right. Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting for sure. Um, so where does that leave us with art? We, we kind of addressed those two questions. Um, I want to talk for a moment about modern art, a little bit. Oh boy, here we go. Um, get your popcorn, boys. Get your popcorn, boys. Yeah, this is my soapbox. I'm gonna sit on it. Um. But before I do that, I think we need to briefly cover another term. Uh, yes. Let's see. Let me get the old. Oh, the problem is that you're using Bing. There's your problem. Oh yeah. Got it. Got uh, it. I don't need your. I don't need your words. Uh, I don't know that I'll find it here. Maybe it'll be under the art. So. There's another concept similar to art called camp. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to find a good example of, I, I'm trying to find a good definition for it because I don't know that I can put a good one to it because it's kind of in the modern sense. Uh, it's kind of a, Oh, Oh boy. Yes, here we go. No. Oh, style. Yes. Okay, so here I feel the disambiguation. So, all right, so camp is an aesthetic style and sensibility that regards something as appealing because of its bad taste and ironic value. Yes. So, camp in a large way is kind of the antithesis of art while also simultaneously falling under the umbrella of art, depending yes. on who you ask. So, Camp is being bad for the sake of being bad, and it's good. Right. You know, um, a good example of this is a lot of comedy can kind of be considered camp, especially performance comedy. Um, Weird Al Yankovic doesn't do this, but there are plenty of musical parody writers that intentionally trash up. A good example would be like Filthy Frank. He's camp. He makes a mockery of music 
in an artistic way to try to communicate something about music. Um, it's weird. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a contradictory thing that exists. Sure. Um, so before I piss off a bunch of people and say that modern art is just camp, um, even though it is, um, Take vaporwave, for instance. I'm gonna stab you right there. Woof. You leave my vaporwave alone. <laughs> um, I, I, okay. I'm just gonna go out into the public arena where I, I, what I've experienced. A lot of people I know, when I use the phrase modern art, all kind of pre- like preemptively eye roll, and things like painting with menstrual blood comes to mind like that kind of stuff right yep so I'm, I'm going there because that's modern art or perching a like 50 ton boulder on top of a ditch that's that's also modern art it's not meant and it's almost it, it's definitely not meant to do this but it 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 all it actively serves as an antithesis to the structure provided in previous forms of art even cubism which at the time was looked at as camp you know it was looked at by some critics as this kind of art it's garbage because it doesn't look like anything you know right up until that form when you look at a lot of the renaissance or classical the classics you know what it's depicting. Hey, these are clearly people. That's clearly a place. And then you get to cubism where it's like, I think that's a, I can see human features, but I don't know if it's a person or not. Because for those of you who don't know, cubism attempts to take the same subject from three perspectives and superimpose them on top of each other. Right. Um, like a cube. It may be more than three. I don't know if it's all the surfaces. Anyway, multiple perspectives. Superimposed. But you're, right, you're superimposing them into a two-dimensional canvas. Right. And things just don't look natural because, of course, they don't. Exactly, because we don't have the ability to perceive the world from all from multiple directions at once. We don't do that. Um, well, besides two, but we're going to skip binaural vision. It's not important. Um, so... The thing about cubism, though, is it had rules. It You can define what it is. Like, cubism is multiple perspective superimposed. Right. Boom. You can define it in a sentence, and you can quickly then look at a work of art and have a pretty good guess as to whether it's cubist or not. Pretty straightforward. For the long time, abstract art was kind of a catch-all term for crap that isn't real. <laughs> and cares a lot more about shapes and color not having I, I would like to interject with a technical term Go here ahead. um there is a subtle but important well okay it's actually only subtle in a popular cultural context in the art world these are very well defined a difference between abstract art and non-representational art what okay. most people call abstract art that is actually non-representational art that doesn't represent anything um whereas yeah let's see this is is modern art that's that's going to the modern age which is a technically defined period non-representational art so they're using it as a catch-all right well it even says right here um abstract art non-figurative 
non-objective and non-representational art are closely related terms. They are similar, but perhaps not of identical meaning. So even that, even that admission is kind of like, eh, I, I kind of don't know what to tell you about their differences, but they're different. Right. <laughs> but, but the thing is that abstract art can be abstract without being non-representational. Take, for instance, like the, the foremost example of this is a stick figure. Yeah. It's abstract. You, you, you abstract a human being into its most immediately recognizable parts, a head, a body, and four limbs. Right. Um, but it, it is still representational of a human. Right. Whereas As something... opposed to like Andy Warhol, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is very non-representational. Sure. Or at least not, well, represent- not representative not... of the physical. I guess I shouldn't I shouldn't say that because Andy Warhol did do some things that have representation. Jackson Pollock. Yep. Now, interesting thing about him, I guess you, this is why the terms I guess are so touchy. It depends on what you mean by representative because his work did represent something. It right, it means he, something or else it's not art. Exactly. It represents how he feels, right. but it's ethereal. Like it's not trying to resemble anything. I think that's probably the better way of putting it non right res yeah whatever it's kind of clunky but yes. it is clunky but i think that's what they're trying to make is the distinction so um but these things are not exactly the same as modern art and, and also modern art's a bad word to use here because yes, because we have a very clearly defined period of art that we could that we call modern art and it's a lot older than what most people mean when they say modern art yeah let's see i think we're looking at contemporary art second half of the 20th century yeah, maybe. Maybe. Okay, so this is this has a good example, though, of what I'm talking about. So the type of art, or so-called art, that uh, I'm being talking about is things are things like, in this example, it's a pair of red ladies' underwear strung from a clothesline, and then in any other context would not even be recognized as art by the uninitiated. But when you place it in an art museum, all of a sudden... Right. When, it, when a famous artist put it there, and now it's in a museum, it's art. Yeah. Right. Um, it, you also hear funny anecdotes about like the museum's trash cans being mistaken for modern art, for example. Yes. Now, the thing about these is that a lot of this artwork has way more to do about who arranged and why they arranged, as opposed to what it is actually. You know. Which is the epitome of what you said earlier about that art can convey, uh, can be used to communicate, but only when the context is known. Exactly. This pushes that to the extreme and says that if you don't know, if the, you don't context, know the context, this is just junk in a pile. Yeah, you don't even know it's art. Right. You know. Um, this kind of art, I think, is starting, for me to at least, push the boundaries of art's usefulness. Um and the reason I brought camp up is a lot of what I see and what I perceive about this kind of art is that it's all done in an air of irony. It's all done in a way to say, I don't need to be because let's be honest. It takes no technical skill either to to arrange some things in like what looks like a living room or something like that. Right. Well, or even to make a pile of garbage, right? It does not a pile of garbage or, or like draw 
a single white stripe on a blue background. Hey, you be careful there. All right. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, it, anyone could do that. But the whole point of it is that, yeah, but this person, this specific person actually did. Right. And if you don't know that, you it, it's very exclusive. It's very exclusive. It's it's art for artists. It's art for those in the subculture of art and the art world, you know. And that's why you see such jarring reactions from people on like social media, for example, and in the commonplace. Like, I would imagine that if you went to the Museum of Modern Art (MoMA) up in New York City. If you are not initiated in art and you walked in, you it would be kind of jarring if you didn't have that expectation because we do have an expectation. But that's kind of also the whole point. It's meant to subvert your expectations of what you think art is and in a kind of campy way tell you you're wrong, you know, and it's a stretch. Um, it's really, I think, pushing the boundaries of how much meaning can be imbued into anything you know is there a limit to what we can imbue with meaning and how much meaning and how much of that meaning is actualized by the viewer you know um i won't jump out and just say it's garbage and that we shouldn't do it but when we start talking about what the point of art is like what is the practical like why does it exist like why do humans do art and why have we done art since before we were able to write things down cave paintings like why did those exist you know and there are a lot of theories as to why and all this but i mean a lot of that i think kind of just comes up to boredom <laughs> and it's cold you're in a cave and humans do have a desire to express themselves in any way, shape, or form. By, by being social beings, being able to separate ourselves as individuals from a group and a species requires self-identification, which is in and of itself a form of expression, I think, anyway. So it kind of just comes with the territory of being our type of social creature. For example, if you took ants and other, like, kind of, you social things and push them to an intelligence equal to ours i don't know that art would ever be a thing it's not required because the whole point of expression is to set yourself apart whereas that's right. contradictory to the whole point of a you social animal of society right um so i don't know i just i think it's important to bring up because it's it's something that I think maybe its only purpose for existing is a experiment to just see how much we can imbue meaning into things. And not only meaning, but worth and value. You know, when you see a pile of garbage sell for millions of dollars, it makes you think, you know. Ooh, there's a little bit more that goes into it than that, though. Sure, go it ahead. Does, it, okay, it does, you're right that it makes you think, but... There's also something to be said about people with lots of money who want to, quote unquote, invest that in expensive artwork to get around certain, uh, <laughs> I see that look mm -hmm. on your face. Yes. Um, 
certain forms to get, of theft. Yes, <laughs> yes, to get to get around paying taxes because you can, you can, you know, say, well, I don't have that much money, but really, it's tied up in this painting that you paid a bunch of money for, and now because it sold for that much, you can reasonably get a lot for it again if you really needed that money again. Sure, or at least to the next guy, the next wealthy enough guy the down the road. The next wealthy enough guy who also wants to tie up his money in, in artwork, he can just buy it from you. Sure. And you're just exchanging cash, basically. Right. So I think that, I think there's something to be said about that, that, that just because artwork sells for a lot does not mean that most people or even a lot of people value it that much. Sure. And art, if anything else, is a perfect vessel for this because it, by its very definition, will hold... It does not have... An intrinsic an, value. Yeah, it doesn't. It does not have an objective value anyway. Or, I'm sorry. I intri- mean, technically, I could cover a window with a canvas that someone painted on and, and use it for something useful like that. Right. If I wanted to. But that's not what it's for. Right. Um. So, yeah, that's interesting. Um. But, yeah. I, I wonder how some modern artists would feel if they knew that's how their art was being used by the, I the think that the, I think that the very rich artists know exactly <laughs> that that's what's going on and they don't care because they have their $400 million. But like the <laughs> aspiring illusioned artist that wants to be the next big Bajas or whatever. And I don't, I feel, I feel like they still don't care because like who's to say that the the artist who you know sold his white stripe on a blue background for four hundred million dollars isn't still pleased that it, you know with what he's up to? Um. Oh, we're we're going to. I need I need to know who this person is. I I know the names of his paintings because they're all like color number whatever. I think. Also, you just looked up blue number two, which yeah. is an actual die. Oh, keep going. What are you doing? Anyway, um, like like for me, uh, if if I were an artist and I were enjoying myself in my work, I don't think I would feel any differently about you know like like if someone if someone bought one of my works for a r- ridiculous price that it clearly wasn't actually worth, but it was you know but they paid that for it. I'm not gonna feel like. Like I'm being used necessarily because I still got my enjoyment out of it already from having done the work. Because that's what art really is about. Is it, like the the process of being creative is its own reward. And if someone wants to pay me for it, that's, that's a completely different thing. Barnett Newman, I think, is the person you were that's, thinking of. That's very possible. Excellent. Anyway, but yeah. Yes. I don't know. But I think the thing for me that. I find so jarring and contradictory and it might have to do with my understanding of the high fashion, high art community. There's a smugness. At least that's how it's perceived from my more lower class upbringings Mm -hmm. as to just how much hot air can be farted out of the mouth of somebody about one of these paintings that when you really look at why it exists and why it's being exchanged for that amount of money, has nothing to do with creativity like by the purchaser maybe by the creator it does right i guess that's what i'm saying is that the the creator still got to be expressive or as expressive as they wanted to be um and they probably don't care yeah but to me it's just weird 
especially seeing the mixture of the two types of people that are involved in that kind of business that are typically, or at least they're typically opposed to one another. Like, especially like a lot of the high art, it has to do with, okay. It communicates a lot about emotion and things that don't have any ties to the objective world, including finances. But it's bound at the highest level of things that, you know, and I'm just going to say, like, a lot of artists tend to be more liberal and even borderline communist, a lot of them. But to then also knowingly exchange your paintings for capital, it, it seems disingenuous. I think that's the thing about modern art that, like, okay, I'm going to take a step back. When you look at, like, the Renaissance works, a lot of the artists back at that time, it was no different. You, no one who's poor can afford to pay you a living wage for something you painted. I'm sorry. Well, no. But a wealthy person can who's got time to and wants to decorate their palace with all of these works of art. Or a lot of these artists back in the day were commissioned to do things like, like if you look at the, the Ninja Turtle artist, for example, and like Michelangelo, he was commissioned to do the ceiling of the, the, the Sistine Chapel, you know. Yes. And he was paid a lot to do it by an institution that had a lot right, of money. A heck of a lot to do it because he didn't even want to do it. Exactly. But he did it for the money. <laughs> but he did it for the money. But it, it there was no illusions about that. Like, he knew he was doing it for the money. I feel like everybody knew he was doing it for the money. And he still created something that was communicated strong symbolism about what... He was being commissioned for his technical skill. Not for, I just need something as a means of exchange. You know what I mean? Right, and and there's no and there was no dissolution. The church just wanted a good looking ceiling for their chapel. Yep, something to uh, ascribe, you know, to be impressive to kind yes. of reflect how they feel about their god. Right, like that's what they wanted. They wanted it to be kind of a offering, weirdly of sort. I, I, and that's probably the wrong word, but you know what I'm saying. Like it needs who, who to knows fit. What they actually wanted, but sure. Anyway. But I mean, it needs to fit the theme of ornateness, like yes. the Catholic Church, like everything else. Everything's clad in gold. People wear stupid outfits that have no practical use, but they're ornate for ornateness' sake because God's ornate, I guess, whatever. But then you look at like royalty. You know, they're commissioning paintings, and they're they're expensive because that person wanted a technically good painting. And and I think for me, the interesting thing to look at is the, how quickly that disconnected. And I say quickly over the course of 200, 300, 400, 500 years. It's not that quick, but it's in, in the course of human history. It's yeah, pretty quick. it's pretty quick to the point where the most well known in terms of dollar spent art is the least recognizable stuff. But the most ubiquitous form of art was done by a dude with an Afro, you know, like the, yes. The Bob Ross, you know, like everybody knows what a Bob Ross looks like. And he had a totally different approach and he didn't make anywhere near the money that some of these other things do. It's just so weird. And I think it's because a lot of the time art gets treated as a monolith when it isn't. And just like any other human endeavor, it has things that exist for really vapid sake and things that exist to serve more practical purposes. Yep. A good example would be... Um, I found an interesting website one time um, that marketed art specifically to a to doctors to hang in their practices, and it's it's expensive, but it's marketed because of its psychological effects on the average person. 
It's there to make you calm. It's there to make you feel warm and safe because a lot of people get intimidated going to a doctor's office. Like it's, it's meant to make, it's literally meant to make you feel less pain when you get your blood drawn, if that makes any sense. Sure. But it, but it does. It's, it's a, it's, it's being highly, it's being highly technically graded for a specific purpose. You know, just like we create physical machines for specific purposes. I think architecture, for example, is the most interesting melding of art and expression with practical function. Most things architecturally are obviously buildings and they exist to serve a physical, practical function. Right. People have to go in there and do stuff. Exactly. But they also want it to be pretty or to be unique. As someone who has an engineering background, it's real funny how engineers and architects are at each other's throats half the time because the architect doesn't care if it's structurally sound most of the time. That's the engineer's job to figure That's, out how to make the thing stand. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's our job to take this piece of art and make it into a useful building. And so I guess my attitude towards art from the get-go has always been something that needs to be adapted to a practical purpose. Um, although my opinions on it has, has changed a lot. It's just an interesting thing. So that being said, you know, I think it's important to not let, you know, I have my opinions about what I call modern art or the, you know, what was the name? Contemporary art. But, and I have my opinions about the, in my eyes, hypocrisy for how a person can say all these things about it, but it's all a ruse just to excuse the selling and exchange of money to as a tax haven, you know, Sure. Uh, essentially. But I don't know. It's ultimately it, it, it raises the question just like the function of what arts being used for. Does it change, you know, sure. With its, with its, uh, cr- does the creativity matter or is it totally separated from the fun- the practical purpose of why it's being exchanged, I guess. Um, well, we're at time. I feel like we could go on for a little more. Um, maybe this, I kind of at some point want to talk about who owns art. Mm. Um, and not so much like copyright sake, but who owns the expression uh, at some point. Just like, a, like I'm just going to give an example. We're not going to go into it. I think we should just discuss it at some other time. But um, why is it that George Lucas being the guy who created star Wars, Mm. he can say this is real star Wars and people will argue that, well, he said it. So it's real. Whereas other people say, well, I made my own thing and added to it. And everyone's like, well, that's not legitimate. You know what I mean? Like who owns the art? Is it the individual who perceives it? Or is it the creator? That's an interesting discussion. That's a little niche, but I think it might be a good topic someday. So we'll add that to the list, I guess, for some time. Next time on philosophers, Maybe. I'm mad at George Lucas, and it's pronounced Jif. So, (laughs) with that being said, philosophers. Philosophers.